the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is certainly not how the world looks at possessions, right? Trust God to take care of you by other means for three years? That's crazy. And then give the fourth year as an offering? Even crazier. Praise to the God who reigns above. I would ask you tonight, do you? Are you giving God your first fruits? Or are you giving God your leftovers? But you know, God desires us to put Him first with our work and our possessions. Holy fire the Lord is with us. We have everything we need in Him. And we're to trust our future to the Lord, knowing that He loves us and that He will lead us. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Leviticus. It is God's desire that His people would be holy, living distinct and separate lives. So He had given the Israelites the moral and ceremonial laws, that they would be different from all the other nations of the world. Last we saw in Leviticus 19 that holiness has a certain attitude. We saw that holiness realizes God's eternal law, doesn't ritualize spending time with God, and is generous to the poor, and is honest in its dealings with others. We continue to see what an attitude of holiness truly looks like as we join Pastor Will in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. Remember the whole theme of the book of Leviticus is that uh, God has called his people to be holy. And so we're learning a lot about holiness in this book. We have been looking at some of the different laws and what we've learned at this point is that there are laws, the moral laws of God, that they are eternal, they never change. God's, so it's never okay to murder, it's never okay to commit adultery, it's never okay to have idols. These things are unchangeable, unwavering. They're moral laws that have been from the beginning and always will be. But we also realize that for Israel, they had ceremonial laws that, that governed their worship. And, and that's where we spent most of the beginning of Leviticus, is on how would a people like Israel, stubborn, hard-hearted people, how could they relate to God? And so God explained all the the ceremonial things that would have to be done to allow them to approach a holy God. But we have moved now from the ceremonial laws that governed Israel's relationship with God to the civil laws that governed their society. And remember, as Christians, we're not a physical nation like Israel. We I mean, I'm a United States citizen, so I have a nation, but we are a spiritual nation in the sense of our faith. Well, there's one church that spans all throughout the globe, and, and we're scattered abroad, and, and we meet in local churches like ours tonight, but the idea is that we are a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual nation, and, and Jesus, someday his kingdom will come to earth, and we pray for that, but now we do not see those things in that way, so we are not a physical nation. Therefore, the principles that are here, the laws that are here, we don't go by these things things because they don't govern our society because we don't have a society in that sense. However, the principles behind these laws give us a glimpse into God's heart. 
And in that glimpse, we see attitudes toward others that are mirrored in New Testament teaching. Because just as Israel was called to be holy, to be different than the world around them, we're called to be different than the world around us. And because of that, there's much to learn from these attitudes of holiness. So we looked at quite a few last week. We'll continue our glance at these attitudes of holiness tonight. So chapter 19, and we'll pick it up in verse 19. He says, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle gender with a diverse kind. You shall not sow your field with mingled seed. Neither shall a garment mingled of linen and woolen come upon you. That's a weird one. We look at some things in the Old Testament and we shake our head because they don't make a whole lot of sense to us. What's interesting here is that we're going to find out in these next few verses that one of the attitudes of holiness is that it approaches life differently than the world does. It's not just that we are different and we do things differently, but our whole approach to it is different. That's the principle behind this. Now, the phrase here, you shall keep my statutes, actually introduces us to a new section. It's showing us I'm covering a different kind of law. And we're going to see some weird ones here. That's why I didn't try to rush through it last week. I said, you know what? We'll take a whole night. We'll cover the weird. And then we'll be done with the weird and move on to the normal again. But the word statutes here, it means that which is engraved and on alterably ordained. In other words, this section deals with God's ordained order of things. It's interesting because it means there are, these are things that the world thinks they can do better. We're going to find that when we look through this passage and we see the principles behind the laws, we will find correlating instances where our world, our society thinks they can do better than God. God reminds Israel that they're to abide by his regulations that he set up in creation. And the first one here shows that our attitude towards work, he has set up certain regulations that we will never improve on. It says here, you shall not let your cattle gender with diverse kind. What God is not saying here is here comes little tan cow coming along and he looks over the horizon and he sees this ebony cow. And he says, ebony cow, you're looking good tonight. Let's make some ebony and tan cows together. And you're there and you're the the livestock farmer or whatever. And you go by and you think, that's a great idea. And then some rabbi comes around and goes, no, this is an abomination. That is not what's being referred to here, okay? The word cattle here just refers to domestic animals. And when it says here, you should not let your domestic animals gender, it means mate with a different or diverse kind. And the idea here is that pagans believe the gods would do something supernatural if they crossbred animals. You don't have to go far to understand this concept. Look at Greek mythology and all the half animals that you see, or even just go to Babylonian ideology. You you could find like the griffin. It's a combination of a few different animals, right? The Babylonian griffin. We find this all throughout pagan religions, this idea of bringing different types of animals together and mashing them into one to make this super creature. And and so they believe that God would do these supernatural things if they crossbred animals. And God, he wants Israel to trust him for the prospering of their livestock. And, And as we'll see here in a second, the prospering of their harvest and the prospering of their personal needs. He mentions, you don't, you don't sow your field with mingled seed. And again, this doesn't mean that you can't have a little strawberry patch over here and a little lettuce patch over there because that's bad. What he's saying is, is you don't try to mix the seed together to create some super strawberry like a big strawberry because it's related to cabbage now or something. The idea behind it is is a pagan idea behind it that that we're going to combine these things or or the different uh, types of uh, uh, woolen and linen. You're going to combine them together to make the clothing that's going to be power clothing and whatnot. And does this apply today? Well, of course not. Unless you think you're channeling, channeling supernatural power by using two different kinds of fabric in your sewing. Okay, And if you, th- if you think you're doing that, then yes, this does apply to you. But there are other areas where mankind has challenged God's divine order today. 
like we're struggling with in our society right now, gender or roles in marriage, as we talked about this morning. And, and the idea is let's trust God's way of doing things instead of trying to think of better ways to do life. You know, we, for whatever reason, we get, we get antsy, don't we, as human beings? Like we get antsy in church. Like we, we start looking around and we're like, you know, it, it, just, it should be better. Well, you're probably right because it's filled with imperfect people. It probably should be better. It could be better. And we can always, you know, do better. But we don't need to reinvent church to do that. We, we don't need to reinvent family to do that. We don't need to reinvent gender to do that. We don't need to reinvent God's rules for right and wrong to accomplish that. We just have to trust him. So in our approach toward work, it's a totally different approach than the world does. You know, you, you don't have to sweat certain things at work and go, well, if I don't do this this way, I'll never get promoted. You know what you do? You say, Lord, I'm going to honor you. I mean, look at Daniel. What did he do? He did the counter opposite way. They said, Daniel, you got to eat this special food that's been offered to our, our deities here in Babylon. Otherwise, you're not going to be, you're not going to be wise like the other people. You're not going to be imbued with the power of the heavens to be part of this crew that Nebuchadnezzar is looking for. And Daniel said, you know, I think I can, I'll be okay without the food. I think I can trust the Lord that he will, he will take care of me and prosper me. And what did it say? They came out better. And here's Daniel. He finds himself, he never compromises his faith at all. I mean, even the point when the king of Babylon, he's there and he has this dream, right? You know, he has this dream and it's a dream that's not good for him. And as he's sitting there and he's thinking, this really scared me. And so he tells the dream to his wise men. And Daniel says, well, uh, Mr. Trump, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar. He says, this is bad. And, and I'm brokenhearted for the news I have to share with you because it's not for your good. In fact, your enemies would be happy to hear what it means. You know, Daniel at that moment, he could have said, <laughs> this is bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. And if, I know how he handles bad news. And he could have said, ah, oh, you know, king, I'll go pray about it, but I just really don't know what it means. But he didn't. And yet we see him prosper time and time again. The Lord took care of him. The Lord put him in these places. So you don't have to worry about that. Your, total, your approach to work is entirely different, you know, than the world does. Not only that, but our attitude towards those who work for us, our attitude towards servants. He says here in, in verse 21, oh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 20, and whosoever lies carnally with a woman that is a bondmaid, betrothed to a husband, and not at all redeemed, nor freedom given her, well, she shall be scourged, and they shall not be put to death because she was not free. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, even a ram for a trespass offering. And the priest, pardon me, shall make an atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the Lord for his sin, which he has done. And the sin which he has done shall be forgiven him. A couple understandings here as we read through this. The bond made here, Israelites could not enslave each other. They were not allowed to. They could enter servitude to pay off a debt. But those contracts were handled very differently than the rest of the world did them. So God had already set up a different way they did debt enslavement or debt servitude and things like that. Like, for example, you can only serve for seven years. And then whether you paid the debt off or not, you will go free. And the idea was it was every seven years, all the bondmaids and bondservants went free. So if you went into debt and you entered servitude with only three months left, that was your three months of service and the debt was canceled. Way different than the world did a debt servitude or indentured servitude in their cultures. So God already is doing it differently. Israel is approaching it differently. Now, in this situation, it mentions if a man lies carnally, has sex with a woman who is his servant, his indentured servant, betrothed to a husband. In other words, a woman who's engaged. But it mentions here, it qualifies it, but she's 
not at all redeemed, nor has freedom been given to her. In other words, her future husband has not paid her debt off so she can be free, nor has the guy who, who, who owns her in the sense of her, her contract, nor has he just let her go. So the idea here is a woman who's engaged, but she can't act in her engagement yet because of her debt contract that she has to fulfill. So if there's a guy and a gal and they get together while she's engaged, but she's a servant, it mentions here, she shall be scourged, but they shall not be put to death because she was not free. Now, he has to qualify this here. We'll get to the scourge thing in a moment because I know you're probably all wondering, what in the world is this? But, but a couple of things to understand. The, normally, the, de- the penalty, if you were engaged to somebody and you were unfaithful, was death. If that was the case, the idea here is he's setting up first, there's going to be a different punishment that it would normally be because she's a servant. That's the key crux of this passage, this, this, these verses. A different penalty because she's an indentured servant rather than if she was free. Because if she was free, she'd be put to death, he'd be put to death, and it would be done, and that would be it. The phrase here, she shall be scourged, is a bad translation. The phrase means she shall be brought before judicial inquiry. Now, there's debate on whether the judicial inquiry refers just to her. The reason that it is translated this way in the King James is because the word is singular and feminine. But the next phrase, as you read right after it, as it says, she shall be, she, she shall be scourged. But when, what's the next pronoun that's used after that? They. So it's obviously here, they shall not be put to death because she was not free. It's very clear here that both of them are in mind. See, the re- reality here is that most commentators believe the judicial inquiry referred to both the man and the woman. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. King James has a bad translation. Now, why do I think that? Well, as I said earlier, the penalty for unfaithfulness during engagement was death, as it was considered the same as adultery. Penalty for rape was death to the rapist. The penalty for sleeping together before marriage, though, was not death. So the judicial inquiry would be required to find out what happened. Did he take advantage of her because she was his servant and she didn't want to upset him? If that's the case, he's put to death. If that was not the case and it was mutual, well, normally they would be put to death. And so the idea here is there'll be a judicial inquiry, but if it finds out that it was consensual, mutual, then they shall not be put to death. And here's why, because she was not free. So if he was found to have taken advantage of her, then death would be his penalty. If it was found to be mutual, then she'd be whipped 40 lashes as a public humiliation for her unfaithfulness, and he'd be required to marry her. That would be his punishment. Sorry, ladies, that's how it was. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a second. Why not death for breaking her engagement vow? And it says here, because she was not free. Her engagement was not legally enforced until she could act on it as a non-servant. So the normal penalty for sex before marriage would apply. And the normal penalty for sex before marriage, if it was consensual, was that you had to marry her. Now, the New Testament does not confirm that, so that's not us. In fact, I think a lot of times in our culture, because we're way more free and our culture is different, that is a mistake. That's compounding one mistake with two, okay? And and a lot of times when I get it, particularly the gal, I do it with the guy too, but particularly the gal, she feels like, I got to marry him because I got to do things the right way now. And I think he's, I tell her, he's a loser, don't marry him. On the other hand, if he's a good guy and they just messed up, well, then you go down the steps the right way. You don't just get married to fix the problem. The reason that became up in our culture is because the parents would get embarrassed. and They said, you need to get married and do it the right way because we're not going to suffer this embarrassment. Now, 
the reason that he had to pay a fine, he had to go take a trespass offering and make an atonement is because it had to do with her honor, okay? He had taken her honor, and as a result, he had to restore it either to her family financially or he had to offer to marry her so that she wouldn't be desolate because here's what would happen. If, if he did not marry her or, or pay it off, she would have nothing to do because her family would never take her back for losing her honor with a man like that. She had dishonored her family by doing so. That was a cultural thing. So in Israeli society, the idea here is, since her family won't take her back, you either need to give them money so they'll take her back, since then they don't have to do it honorably, they're doing it because he's got money he's paid for it, or he has to marry her. So the idea here is, because she was not free, her engagement was not legally binding, therefore death is not the penalty, and it reverts to the normal penalty for sex before marriage, okay? So the idea here is, is he's just qualifying it for this situation. Now, what's the whole point of a different type of attitude? Well, realize pagan cultures treated female slaves as property. They were almost considered concubines or personal prostitutes. You know, they, cons- they considerably took advantage of them. And God tells Israel that they're going to respect the dignity of all people, even those with the lowest status, which would be a servant. Beware of those who would use this verse out of context to talk about how the Bible oppresses women. Not at all. This passage is elevating both the status of women and servants beyond the entire culture of all history at this time. Now, the third area that we're to be different than the world in our approach is our attitude toward possessions. Verse 23. And when you shall come into the land and you shall have planted all manner of trees for food, then you shall count the fruit thereof as uncircumcised or that which is forbidden, that which is cut off, you don't touch it. He says unto you, it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, verse 24, all the fruit thereof shall be holy to praise the Lord. It'll be dedicated to God like a first fruits offering. And in the, uh, to praise the Lord withal. And in the fifth year, then you can eat the fruit thereof that it may yield unto you the increase thereof I am the Lord, your God. Now, (laughs) what if somebody came to you and said, hey, you want to start a business? That's awesome. You can't take a paycheck for three years. Oh, and by the way, the next year, the fourth year, your entire paycheck earnings, they go to God. So what am I supposed to do with the first three years of earnings? You burn it. And this was something that didn't continue. This is just when they would get into the land and then this law would become null and void. It wouldn't matter anymore. After the fifth year came about, then they could eat the fruit. They had other rules for how they planted their agriculture, and we'll get to that later on in the law. The idea here is, I want you to look at your possessions way differently than the world does. This is certainly not how the world looks at possessions, right? Trust God to take care of you by other means for three years? That's crazy. And then give the fourth year as an offering? Even crazier. But you know, God desires us to put him first with our work and our possessions. I would ask you tonight, do you? Are you giving God your first fruits or are you giving God your leftovers? He loves you so much. He's gonna take care of you. Trust him. He's gonna take care of you. Put him first. One of the things I appreciated about one of the bosses I had, he was a Christian man, and he would never pay people the salary that just across the board. Well, this is the role, this is the position. A lot of times you would take into consideration their family situation. And I was the hiring manager. What I loved was sitting down with somebody and going, what do you need to get by? What do you need to take care of your family? And to be able to go to my boss and then he would go a little bit above and beyond that and bless them. Now that came out of his pocket. That was money out of his pocket. I was so blessed by that because it, it, it showed me that a guy who just trusted the Lord for all of his stuff, 
He didn't, he didn't have to count and miser about every penny. He, he just was like, you know, I'm going to bless the people who work for me. I'm going to run my business way different than everybody else does. And you know what? God prospered him big time. Because the Lord, he loves that. He loves a cheerful giver. He loves it when we're generous. So our attitude toward our possessions should be way different than the world does. So we live life, our approach to life is different than the world. The second attitude we're going to see tonight is this attitude of holiness. It puts God first in everything. Look at verse 26. He says here, You shall not eat anything with the blood, neither shall you use enchantment nor observe times. You shall not round the corners of your head, neither shall you mar the corners of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. See, God knew this morning I would get the really hard stuff, and then he'd counter it with the other hard stuff tonight. (laughs) Let's start at the beginning. All right, verse 26. You shall not eat anything with blood. That's already been established. I'm not going to cover that again. Why? I think it's Leviticus uh, 17. You can get the CD on that to go into that. But he also mentions here, neither shall you use enchantment nor observe times. In other words, we're to put God first in everything that we do. And the first way we do that is regarding our future. The word enchantment here means divination. It's to use omens and signs to determine God's will. Listen, as Christians, we don't operate like that. Like, I don't have a weird dream and then wake up and go, ooh, what are you saying, God? Now, does that mean that God never speaks through dreams? No, of course he does. We have biblical examples of when he does. If I have a dream that I've got three heads and I'm running from a four-headed monster and I think to myself, I'm going to lose because he's got four heads and I only got three. I don't need to wake up and go, does this change the Trinity? That is not, what I need to do is probably not eat what I ate before I went to bed next time. These, we do not live by superstitions. We do not live by signs and by omens. And I see so many Christians who they live, their, their, their lives are all about this. Well, you know, so-and-so said this to me, so, you know, I'm just gonna be real careful today. That is fear. And God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of, of love, you know, and, and, and of something else and a sound mind. I can't remember what the other one is. Power, there we go. Love and of power and of a sound mind. God has given us a sound mind. We don't have to be crazy like that where we're always in fear of all these things that we see around us. I always thought it was the weirdest thing where Christians get freaked out by 666. I was probably not the nicest young Christian. I always want to like walk into church like with a 666 on me somewhere. Just to see, you know. And what are you doing? Like, I'm not have to worry about it. There's a reason 666 has a meaning in the Bible. It's the name of the beast. And when you take his mark, there's an identification with him in worship. There's an identification with him in following and loyalty. And an identification with him in rejecting the Lord. Yeah, and I worked for Chick-fil-A for years. And there would be people, they would come up to the register. And there were times when cashiers, the bill would be 666. I'm like, oh man, no, I'm, I'm adding some extra sour cream on this, you know. And they'd pay for it out of their own money. I'll be like, what are you doing? You're a Christian. You don't need to be afraid of this stuff. No, it's 666, man. You know, wife's going to get in a car accident or something. We don't read horoscopes. We don't have to do any of that stuff. Observe times. It, It means to tell the future through spells or speaking with the dead. I realize it's sentimental to feel like those that we love who have gone on to be with the Lord, that they're still with us. And I guess there's a sense because of all they've implanted into us and all the memories we have that that's true. But like, we're not to be like, okay, dad, you know, I'm, you know, I, I got this thing going on or grandpa or grandma or mom or, you know, sister or favorite aunt, you know, we, we don't, you know, help me out with this one. This is going to be a hard one. You know, we don't have to do any of that. They're, they're not there with us to assist. The Lord is with us and we have everything we need in him. 
Okay, we're to trust our future to the Lord, knowing that he loves us and that he will lead us. God wants us to lead holy lives. Remember, the word holy means separate, pulled out from among. We are to live lives that are different from the rest of the world because we have seen God. We have seen his mighty hand, his loving outstretched arms, and his presence in our daily life. Reviewing Leviticus 19, we saw that an attitude of holiness realizes God's eternal law, doesn't ritualize spending time with God, is generous to the poor, and is honest in its dealings with others. Holiness doesn't take advantage of the disadvantaged, doesn't take advantage of the poor, nor of people that are not around to defend themselves. Holiness is loving as Jesus loved, forgiving, and hoping the best for the people around us. An attitude of holiness also means we have a higher view of the people we encounter, be it our employees or servers. An attitude of holiness always puts God first. We should do these things because we love God and see the world as He sees it. Let's be holy people. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.